Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Before I start the beginning of the podcast, I just want to let you know that this is a very special podcast that I did with the head of the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal this past summer, but I wanted to hold the episode for him to promote the 2016 Just for Laughs Festival, which is July 13th through the 31st in Montreal, Canada. And if you want to check it out and get tickets or passes, you go to www.hahaha.com. And on Twitter, you can go to at Just for Laughs. And for my guest today, who I'm very excited about, who will really, really blow you away, his first podcast, you can check him out on Twitter at Bruce Hills, B R U. C-E-H-I-L-L-S at Bruce Hills. Enjoy the show. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, live from Montreal at the Just for Laughs Festival. And I am very excited because I am sitting down with Bruce Hills, the CEO, head honcho, one of the big wigs always at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. And he's never done a podcast before. And I am honored that he chose us to do his first podcast. He didn't actually choose it. I've been hammering away at this guy persistence everybody for I don't know how many times I've asked him to do this podcast but let's just say it's more than my toes and my fingers combined but he's here and he agreed to do it and I think there's a great woman behind every man normally and 
I think when I asked him with his wife there, that was actually a good sign because she sort of winked a little bit, and I thought maybe he sees that she's happy, we'll do the podcast, but you never know. might not be the case. Anyway, I want to thank all of you so much for doing this and for sharing your stories and for being so great to this podcast and sending all the letters and emails. It's amazing. Your support, absolutely incredible. And this interview, I think, is a reward because I've known Bruce Hills probably my whole career. And I just want to start off by saying, because I never know what I'm going to say, when I sit across from him, I get very emotional because he's a huge, huge part of my life. And a lot of times he's one of these unsung heroes for comedians that people don't really understand because a lot of times the public and everybody all over the world you just naturally see somebody on television and you think oh well those producers or those people or those executives are the ones that made sure that that person was on television and that's why or they're in films but what you don't really understand is that And I can safely say that probably 90% or 95% of every single comedy person who is in this business has come through this festival. And a huge, huge percentage of them have broken in the business because there were executives up here in the film and television business who saw them and were blown away by their talent and decided to get them engaged in a television deal or a film deal, and the rest is history. And for me and the artists that I work with, this festival has been one of the greatest gifts that could ever be given to them. What's fascinating a lot of times is when you come up here, you do a deal, and they give you a certain amount of money for your artist to come here. And I always thought secretly in the privacy of my own office I should be paying Bruce Hills to have the artist come here. He shouldn't be paying us because what happens up here, it's magic. And I'm going to give you an example of what I perceive to be magical. And don't get me wrong. If you're an artist and you're not creating holy shit moments up here and you're not undeniable up here, well, you're not going to have magical moments. And it would be unrealistic for Bruce to think that every single person he booked up here was going to have magical moments. It doesn't happen. But for those artists who put it all together and focus and concentrate and give it everything they have, their lives change forever. And I remember early on in my career, over 20 years ago, Bruce was heavily involved in watching comedians, and believe it or not, I don't know how he does it. Even though he has a full staff of people, he still looks at comedians. He still is involved in their booking. He still has a say, even though he's so many other responsibilities. But back then, he was a big, big part of it. And obviously, one of my first clients I ever worked with, a young comedian, Dave Chappelle, who's here this year at the festival, selling out 10 shows who I actually went to see, he invited me the other night, and I sat in his dressing room for an hour, and one of the greatest experiences you could ever have in your life is to sit across from Dave Chappelle and just spend time with him alone, let alone just sit in your seat and zone in on what he's doing. 
because I think he's the closest thing that we have to Richard Pryor and Bill Cosby combined without the Quaaludes. But he's so accessible. You come here, you go down to the bar, he's dancing in the patio, he's talking to people. And I believe that one of the reasons that he is like this here is because from the very beginning, Bruce Hills gave him a shot. And he said, listen, I know you're only 18 years old or 19 years old, but I want you here and I want to give you that opportunity. And throughout that time, Dave's been up here numerous times. The reason why he comes up here, yes, he makes money. But he can make this kind of money anywhere. He could just say, hey, Peoria, Illinois, 10 shows, let's do it. It's not a question of that he can't make it anywhere. He chooses the amount of money he makes. And if you're Bruce Hills at the festival at Dave Chappelle's stage of the game, you don't even care if you lose money. You have his name and his photo likeness on the program. That's worth millions of dollars. But Dave feels comfortable here, and he walks around the lobby and hangs out with people because he feels safe. And he feels safe because one person had the balls when he was 18 years old to say, I want you here. And I get emotional about this because when you're a manager and you represent talent, you make a commitment that you believe in those people. But you don't know if anybody else is going to believe in them. And Bruce Hills was one of the first people that ever believed in Dave Chappelle and saw Dave Chappelle and thought, this guy's going to be a star. So when we came down here, we were doing something called the Uptown Comics. And it was this beautiful room called Club Soda to hold about 500 people here in Montreal. And we came up here and we sat down and we formulated a plan of how to exceed Bruce Hill's expectations. To not just come up here and do sets, but to do something that would not only blow Bruce away, but that would blow away the industry. And we made a unique decision. He had two sets on the Uptown Comedy Club show, an early show and a late show. We made the unique decision to create two separate 15-minute sets that were totally different. And I had asked Bruce in passing, and he wouldn't remember this because I didn't want to tell him what we were doing, but I asked him, do people normally do the same sets? And he said, absolutely. They just go, they want to recreate, you know, people normally don't come back. But I knew if Dave, being such a young person, the industry would come back and people would bring other people to see him. And sure enough, we did the first set and there were some big people on the show like Eddie Griffin who were much, much at a higher level than him. But Dave completely stole the show and it was incredible. And I remember he got off stage and says, hey, maybe it was so great we could do anything we want. I said, no, we'll do the second set, all different material like we planned. He did that again, killed even harder, and people were blown away. And I tell you, I've got so many cards that it could fill like a coffee table. I got back to L.A., and there were offers left and right. There were network presidents calling. Everybody wanted to do a deal with Dave. And we ended up doing a deal with Disney where we did probably seven pilots in eight years that didn't really go anywhere. 
But the point I'm trying to make is that if you're an executive somewhere at a company and you're dealing with talent or all sorts of people at the company, the key is always to be a wonderful, kind man or woman, somebody who treats people with respect and gives them the feeling inside that they're valuable and they're always valued. And the key if you're an artist or anyone in any company, you're going somewhere, is you have to go in knowing that there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of people out there who want to take the spotlight. So you always have to figure out what you need to do to change the way people look at you and the way they look at the other people around you so that you rise to the top. And if you do that, I'm telling you right now, you will blow people away and you will be in a position where you will never, ever have to worry again about anything professionally. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll 
who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a very, very important moment for me, and this podcast is going to be one which I will probably play over and listen to over and over again because I'm doing an interview here with Bruce Hill, somebody who has changed the lives of more people in comedy than anyone I know in my entire career. And I'm going to give him the proper introduction, and hopefully he won't fall asleep because he's probably gotten about one hour sleep. Bruce Hills is the chief operating officer for the Just for Laughs International Comedy Festival, the world's largest and most prestigious comedy event taking place every July in Montreal, with new additions to the festival circuit in Toronto and Sydney, and going to be branching out to many, many other cities across the world. Bruce has been its driving force for over 20 years and oversees all festival activities, including original television programming and numerous sellout Canadian and international touring projects. Just for Last Montreal welcomes this year its 33rd edition, drawing over 2 million people to come out and see comics such as Kevin Hart, Dave Chappelle, Louis C.K., and many, many more. Bruce started with Just for Laughs in 88 as the director of programming for 11 years, then moved on to become the vice president of international television with Just for Laughs. And from 1999 on, he is the chief operating officer of the Just for Laughs Festival. In addition to his extensive resume and live productions, he is responsible for over 1,000 Just for Laughs television broadcasts by various networks around the world. In 2013, he was named in the UK edition of GQ as the most powerful man in international comedy. His main focus is now on building unique festivals and events around the world while overseeing the greatest festival in the world here in Montreal. Bruce has also produced Family Guy Live featuring Seth MacFarlane and the entire cast of the show in Los Angeles, Chicago, Toronto, and New York City at the prestigious Carnegie Hall. Please welcome my guest today, one of the most respected people in comedy, and somebody who I like to call a friend, Bruce Hills. Hey, Barry. It's very kind, and uh, and first of all, one thing I should say, you know, it's my absolute pleasure to do this. I just saw all the stars doing it, and I said, uh, I'm, not, I'm not worthy, so I didn't want to bore your uh, your listeners, and, uh, you know, so that, that was the only reason I held back. It is a pleasure, and I'm glad I'm doing it. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to say is that um, 
I appreciate all you're saying, but you know, it's really about the artists improve. What you know, the the artists are the comics are the basis of what we are here at Just for Last. And you know, you can point at me or you can point at Robbie Pra now, who is a phenomenal. He's great uh, guy and and the key guy on the program. I mean, that's I used to be the key guy in the programming. Robbie is the guy now, and I I, I give him full credit because he's the guy that's put the event in its current place that we're in today. Uh, you know, obviously I, I'm right there beside him, but I, I, I give him a, a great deal of credit for the for the talent aspect of our festival in the last five years. Plus, I have to give full credit to, to Robbie Pra. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think this is really important. It's something that I sort of alluded to in the cold open. You've had hundreds and hundreds of kids come through the ranks here at the Just for Last Festival offices, mm-hmm. including Robbie Praw. Hundreds. But Robbie Praw broke through. Robbie Praw got your attention. Robbie Praw, when it came time for you to take on more responsibilities, you had to make a decision. Out of all of the people that have worked for me, I'm going to pick Robbie to be my successor in bringing in comedy talent to Montreal. What was it about him that showed you things that he could do where all these other people who came in and out for some reason didn't show you that they could be the one to carry the torch? Well, this is a great question because um, it's not easy because I've made a lot of mistakes in that area over the years and... uh, I mean, just in it, you know, I've, I've hired the wrong people. Uh, 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 I just had a, a you know, had a hunch on Robbie. You know, he was sort of green when I gave him the job. I mean, you know, there were uh, parts of me saying, oh, let's just go to a, a senior established person and, and not take any chance here. But just Robbie's nose for talent, his nose for business, to get the two of them together is a rarity. And the passion was just unstoppable i mean he wanted the event to be great he was very very clear with me very passionate about it needing to be better and um and i like that a lot um you know i thought he was incredible at times neurotically driven to make it better uh, still today i believe that's that but uh he sets a standard he sets a standard for, for his staff um and you know what here's the thing what i wanted i wanted something to keep me on my toes because he will gladly walk into my office and say, I don't agree with what you're doing, and here's what I would do, and, and you know, basically push back if he believes that there's something happening that, you know, that is not in the best interest of Just for Laughs, and I need that, and our team needs that. And, uh, you know, I, I see a little bit of the passion I had, and, you know, hey, I'm an old dude now. Uh, I don't have maybe the same drive that, that someone of Robbie's age does, and uh, i got to make sure to put someone in that place because, you know, when Andy Nauman gave me the gig here many, many, many years ago, my, you know, the gentleman that hired me, you know, nearly 30 years ago just for last, um, I think he let me take over at one point because he saw my, you know, passion for things, my energy for making just for last better, my willingness to go on a plane and fly over the place when he didn't want to. And, you know, he did the right thing for the, for the brand and the festival that we love and that we've established. You know, in a way, it's handing a torch to someone as much as I'm the guy in charge. Um, Robbie is, uh, 
Robbie is the guy that um, I look to, to drive what uh, Just for Laughs is today on a programming level and, and, and more and more every day on a business level too. Now, talk about what it's like to be the COO of a company and a festival and you take an interview with a guy after your 27th year doing it. Now, you don't do something 27 years and have it be considered a failure. Mm-hmm. And do you look for a guy to come into the interview and take a risk and say, you know what, you might be doing it 27 years, you might be number one festival, but there's a lot of this that isn't good. And this is what I do to make it better. You know, that's a risk. A guy could come in the office and the CEO could throw him out of the office. How do you respond when you're doing a 27 years and you're the most successful festival and the guy says it's not good? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I'm trying to remember now how many years it was exactly. But I mean, it was somewhere in the five to six, seven years ago that Robbie. Listen, it was, it was a couple of things. Number one, um, he was working under someone at the time. Um, so I saw what I believed was you know, an excellent up-and-coming executive. And you just said something, again, fascinating. He's working under somebody. That person working above him wants that gig. Well, in, the ca- in this case, the person actually was, was, did a very nice job for us and just decided that they wanted to move on and do something else. So I had a choice to really, for all intents and purposes, go out and woo a New Yorker, L.A., Toronto, maybe top-level executive to come to Montreal, which isn't easy, to be honest with you, okay? I mean, uh, as much as the city's rocks, uh, you know, someone's got a family living in L.A. and they're American, I got to get, you know, a tough call. They might not survive, you know? It's a it's a French town, uh, you know, uh, largely, and, uh, you know, just like uh, it, the case is with our Montreal Canadians, you know, where you've got a shitty Canadian dollar and, uh, you know, you got to come and put your kids possibly in French school. Isn't It isn't easy. So it... it it was always in my best interest to find someone locally, but there was no one that had substantial experience. And Robbie just stepped up and was smart and great. And to me, it was a natural. I thought I had a limited amount of risk. And of course, he was junior in certain aspects of the job and uh, had to grow into it and still growing into it every day because we give him more. We probably give him too much. Um, but uh, that's okay. I mean, look, I, I got the gig at director of programming in 88. I didn't even know what the heck I was doing. I just, you know, I think what Andy saw in me was just someone that had a nose. And let's be clear here, is you were very complimentary off the top. Uh, you know, to me, Chappelle, and we'll talk about that in a second, because there's a, there's a fun story that goes with that booking and the call I made to you. But, you know, Chappelle was a no-brainer. I mean, if you missed Chappelle on a VHS tape, <laughs> you know, uh, then you shouldn't be in the job. I mean, there's... It was a no-brainer. What's difficult is when you see a morsel of something, you know, or you, you see a point of view and you go, hmm, I love the attitude, the presence. It's like, you know, seeing, even seeing Leary the first time, you know. Dennis Leary. Yeah, De- Dennis Leary. Was, it was presence. There wasn't much material. Man, the guy had a rock and roll attitude out there on stage. And, and, uh, and I, you know, uh, I, I paid a lot of attention to Dennis from that point forward. But back to... You know, I made enormous, you know, enormous amount of mistakes over the years. I've missed people, uh, no question. You know, and, and especially in the old days, you know, uh, when we had a much smaller net. You know, today now we book 250 comics. In the old days, we booked about 50. 
we said no a lot. I mean, we say still say no a lot, but we said no to a lot of great comics. Some get pissed, you know. Um, some of them had a grudge. Some of them still have a grudge because we didn't endorse them at a certain time. For everything, for all the love that Dave gives me, and he is incredibly generous in return for everything that this festival has done for him and for what I've done for him, he's given it back ten times. There's other people that say, screw them. I'm not going there, or if I'm going there, I want to be paid more than I should be paid. And, you know, it's usually doesn't work out. Um, so, you know, it's great to be on the right side of a programming decision, because when you're on the wrong side of it, you know, uh, it's an uphill battle to, to woo that person back to the festival sooner or later. I uniquely feel qualified to talk about this because I've been on both sides. I have an artist that I work with. I've worked with him for 25 years. He's never done the festival, and he doesn't hold a grudge. Then put him in the Smithsonian because he's a rarity. You know? Jay Moore, he doesn't even think twice about it. He's never done the festival. He's had a great career. And it doesn't phase him at all. He doesn't think, why don't I do the festival? Why don't He just says, one day, if they want me, I'll be there. And if they don't, no. First of all, Jay's great, and we'd love to have him. So <laughs> I don't know what's happening there. But no, anyway. but I'm saying for a guy like Jay, he's the personality like, hey, look, if they want me in, uh, in Chicago, I'll go. Your career can go in so many different places that you hope to do something one time. He's never worked in London, never worked in Australia. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it's not going to happen, but he's not going to be like, I can't stand this anymore. I'm not going to work with this guy because he didn't book me. I don't expect you to tell me the comedians that hold a grudge against you because I don't want to put you on the spot. But I would love you to tell me, in your mind, three comedians that you saw and for some reason you just thought, I don't get it. Like, for instance, for me, I'll share something with you. I saw Kevin Hart very early on. He was working in my comedy club. He wanted me to represent him, and I wanted to represent him. I just felt he wasn't ready. It was at a time when Chris Tucker was hot. He had the Chris Tucker voice, great presence on stage, and he said, I'm ready to act. I'm ready to do it. And I said, well, just be patient. And he said, I, I got to go. I got to go to L.A. And he booked, like, his first pilot and then his second pilot, and... And granted, it was probably 17 years or 15 years until things really popped, which is what happens. But still, Bill Burr is somebody that I represented, and Bill booked his first acting job ever on a show called Townies. And then, for whatever reason, wasn't able to convert on probably the next 10 year of acting jobs. And I actually stopped working with Bill, and he's a huge, huge star. So I know the people in my mind that I looked at. Lisa Lampanelli was always somebody. I'd always go and watch her kill, and it's so wonderful and wanted to work together, but I just didn't, I don't know, I just didn't see the film. And I always loved film and television and how that worked together, and I just didn't get it. Tell me three people who you saw that to this day you're like, Jesus, I made a mistake there. Made a mistake by not booking them. Yes. Well, you know what? Not um, made a mistake, but you didn't book them as soon as you probably could have, and they became big stars. Well, listen, and then you, uh, might have uh, you know, I think that um, I realized, uh, you know, first time I saw Bill Maher, you know, I thought he was fantastic. But the problem was, for me at the time, I was booking, you know, there was there was an exorbitant amount, enormous amount of white guys in suits, and I needed <laughs> diversity. And, you know, and I made a mistake. I didn't book Bill soon enough, and should have really paid attention because Bill was better than a lot of the people that I booked in his place. But c'est la vie, you know? 
Uh, I think Bill's okay. Uh, he doesn't need any. T- he was fine without just for last in his in his life. But uh, you know, I missed that one. I think the you know I I, I missed Rosie O'Donnell. Um, you know, I think that uh, you know just for last is a festival where we book everything from the edgiest to the broadest entertainer. And uh, you know, Rosie probably is someone I I should have booked. I, I think I missed on that one. Um, you know, to be quite honest, I, I don't remember. I'm, I'm sure there's many, many more, but uh, those are two examples that come to mind because uh, I think about it from time to time. Uh, um, you know, when I when I when someone says very something very nice to me, it's funny that I start I sometimes about my ability to find talent. What goes back is I f- flip through all the people that maybe I should have booked earlier or given more significant roles at the festival because I di- I didn't catch it. Or what's great now is, well, first of all, that you know, largely that job is Robbie Praz, um, is that, you know, I believe we have really smart people at Just for Last, um, led by Robbie, that have opinions, that feel that they can, they can um, say who they think or what they say, you know, what they believe, and they can be passionate, and there's a platform for that. And that just makes us better. And I, and I have to give a bit of credit to Paul Provenza many, many years ago. I know we're flipping off to another subject here. That's but okay. Hey, it seems like the style of the podcast, so I'm going to go with great it. Great comedian. Um, 10, 12 years ago, I'm terrible with, with dates, but, uh, but a while ago, I was in South by Southwest walking with Paul Provenza. I hadn't seen him in a long time. Things were starting to really happen for him again, you know, as, as a producer, you know, more than a stand-up. And... Um, he started to very eloquently and, and kindly uh, sort of rip the festival part. But he did it in a way that um, that was he did it in, in such a um, in a, such a way that uh, it really got my attention. And he, he systematically walked through things that he felt were wrong, that were largely uninspired, boring, and that we were missing out on for for um for the most part the solo show aspect of our festival that we were too much of a showcase short set and we were missing fantastic comedy voices that can't perform in that space that need the hour that aren't stand-ups that can't be on a tv show and he just said i mean you can do this you want but man are you missing out and then he went through a whole bunch of other things that he felt was you know the, uh, that he felt we were missing out on and uh and I just listened. I said, you know, he's 100% right. There's nothing he's saying that's wrong. I mean, there might be a couple little elements he didn't understand about what, 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 what our reality is, but he was 100% right. What you're talking about, the one-person shows that are so prevalent across the country that people are doing that are more like a hybrid theatrical presentation along with comedy. You're right, but, but also, uh, Barry, it was that it wasn't just the seven- and ten-minute slot that he felt comedians needed. they needed 60 minutes to do the job that some people just don't perform in a short self, which is obviously the case. I mean, it wasn't, that wasn't a surprise to me, but he just said, you know, we needed to be the leader in that space as well. We needed to book certain things. We needed to, he said, he, he was very loud about certain things we shouldn't do anymore. He thought they were hacky and blah, blah, blah. But all, anyway, all that to say is that um, I left that, uh, that walk around Austin, Texans, Texas, not upset with the festival, but inspired on what the potential was for us if we could make some moves. Because I, 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 
I had heard it in different ways, but he did it the most, you know, he was probably the most eloquent and clear. And I sat down, I said, okay, I got to make some changes. So I actually hired him, I think, uh, a week later to be one of our consultants and help produce a, a series of uh, one-person shows that we 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 um, we did at the festival. And, uh, and for many, many years, Paul was that voice I would call, that that guy would call and say, hey, I'm thinking of doing this or that. What do you think? Uh, I'd have him come to the festival, have him come outside of the festival dates, meet with my team, talk to them. Um, and I think it was very helpful. And then basically it transitioned really into Robbie, who to sort of, Sort of, I had a variety of things I did in the in the early in, in those earlier years to produce the festival that I wanted in terms of artistic direction and influence, and then little by little I realized Robbie could do it on his own and build his own team, because he had a vision on what this festival needed to be, and I had to give him the keys. I couldn't be giving him. Uh, I, I couldn't tell him like if he was a, a you know a basketball coach. Here's all your assistants. You know, he had to go fire. He had to fire the people on the bench and start over, um, because I bought that he got it and was going to make it better. But Paul played a very important role in that transition. You know, um, and I have to give him credit. Yeah, well, you were the kind of guy who would always come to town, and you take your select meetings with people, and I was honored to be one of them. And you'd sit down with me with your notebook. And you'd pick my brain on like, okay, what's happening? Who's new? What's going on? Who do you think is hot? And you'd ask me about people, many people that weren't my clients who I believed in, who I thought were great. And you said, tell me people that you represent, but then tell me other people that you think should have a shot. And you're always like that. And I appreciate that. Let's go way back. I want to find out what your family was like growing up, what happened there, and what was the first inspiration that you had to get into the comedy business? Well, I um, grew up here in Montreal. I'm a, uh, my parents moved here. My dad um, was a New Zealander, my mom a Texan. Um, my dad was teaching at University of Texas. I think he was a junior professor. I was an entry-level uh, uh, job at University of Texas, and met my mom who was uh, studying there. Uh, my grandfather was the head of the political science department at uh, University of Texas. Um, and he was offered a job at McGill. Um, McGill University. McGill University here in Montreal. And uh, soon after, my parents got married, moved to Montreal in the 50s. Uh, Montreal was a bit of a dump in the 50s. Nowhere as cool and vibrant a city that it is today. Um, and, um, you know... Um, brought up a family in this city and uh but luckily for me I was able to travel to New Zealand and back to the states all the time and take in uh, a lot of time in Texas um you know I'm a big fan of Austin and uh, grew up in my summers in Austin Texas which I just love my grandmother would pay for me to go to this camp called Friday Mountain Boys Camp uh outside of Austin Texas which was cool I got to learn how to ride horses badly and you know, avoid rattlesnakes. It was, it was a great experience. And um, and every couple of years, I would go back to New Zealand, including a year in grade 10. I guess I was uh, 16. I, I got to spend a year going to uh, boarding school in New Zealand in a crappy little town called Palmerston North, New Zealand, but a great school called Palmerston North, Palmerston North Boys High. And it was actually interesting there uh, when I there's a couple times when you when something happens and you realize you better pay attention, and one of them was 
I was in, uh, there's a very good private school, and I was not a great student. And because my family is quite brilliant, my dad's a PhD and bop, 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 and quite well known in New Zealand, they put me in the highest level of this boarding school, which is a huge mistake on their part. Uh, and uh, at one point, I went into a fla- uh, French class, and I'm from Montreal, and I supposedly speak French. And I wasn't even the best guy in French, so I knew it was time I better, if I have had any interest in finishing any schooling, that I better start paying attention. And the great thing about this boarding school was that actually, because I had no ability to pay attention, uh, they made you sit in a room and do your homework for three four hours every night, and that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I had to go, I had to study, left that school with a real sort of... Uh, eye-opener that it was time to pay attention and uh and then you know little by little I always wanted to be in show business partly for reasons that make sense and partly for reasons that don't make sense you know I you know I just wanted to be you know I wanted to meet rock and roll bands I wanted to meet the Stones I you know I wanted to meet Zeppelin you know I wanted to meet Aerosmith just because for no other reason you know I wanted you know so I've you know so I got to be in this show business somehow I've got to figure this out and I just felt I had a knack for organizing things. You know, I'd, you know, there'd be a, um, uh, I would get my friends together and knew how to produce things. And I, I think it was in grade eleven, high school, that I organized a party, but I did it very uniquely, and I did it outside the school. And I got the tickets printed. You know, I, I, I got a poster made, and all of a sudden I said, you know, and I, and I organized a, a kick-ass party. And everyone loved it. And I just, all of a sudden, just sort of saw a light and said, hmm, I think I might be able to do that. I'm not very good at anything else. I'm not a very good student. I, am, I, I don't know what's, what, what the future holds, but maybe I should pay a little bit more attention to this end and not the silly part of me getting into rock and roll for no reason at all. Uh, so little by little, I uh, you know, got on a school committee to, you know, I got in charge of organizing all the school entertainment so I got the budget for the entire entertainment budget for, you know, where I went to, to siege up here in Quebec. Um, so I pr- produced all these big concerts and all of a sudden then met all the media and a little by little sort of said, you know, I think this is what I'm good at. Um, I'm not really good at anything else. I better do that. And then uh, bumped into a gentleman by the name of Andy Nolman. Who Andy Nolman is another man who's responsible for a lot of things that have taken place in my career as well and always been wonderful to me well yeah well uh, andy was um at a gig at this new comedy festival in montreal that was just just starting it was in its second year uh in english it's fourth year overall because the first two years of uh this event was in french only and now we're bilingual french and english uh, just pour rire and just for laughs and um and uh i went i was uh Andy was teaching a course at this uh, at this Egypt, and uh, and uh, we hit it off. And he said, "Hey, you know, if uh, if you want, um, we're looking for drivers at this comedy festival. Uh, do you uh, do you have a job?" And I said, "Well, I'm a bartender, and I work at Budget Rent a Car, but and I and I do all these little shitty entertainment gigs on my own. Uh, but I said, "Yeah, I'll do that." And it was actually properly paid so it was it was it was a great gig so my first summer you started as a driver I started as a driver and it was uh and my first summer was driving it was hilarious I had to I drove Jerry Lewis and his family uh and Sandra Bernhardt 
and they just came out of King Economy, the Scorsese film, of course, a uh, fantastic film. And they it's had gone to Broadway. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Wow, very cool. Uh, so they had not got along on the film. So uh, every time I would pick up Jerry to drive him somewhere, they would ask me about Sandra. And then every time I, I'd pick up Sandra, he was like, uh, you know, how's Jerry? What's he doing today? <laughs> you know, uh, miserable son of a bitch. You know, and, you know, it was very, very funny. And for me, it was a unique opportunity to see, um, to have a sort of bird's eye view of how the business can roll at times. And, but at the time, there was a producer. And the other gentleman that I drove was the executive producer of Letterman. He said, call me if you're ever in New York and come see the show. So... All of a sudden, I realized I had picked up seven cards that summer. I called them and, you know, started to build a network, you know, started to realize that maybe I can do more than organize a school dance or drive Jerry Lewis or separate him from uh, Sandra Bernhardt. Uh, so this, uh, so, you know, I, I did the, I drove another summer and then in 88, because I was thinking I was the second, there was a lot of French staff, Andy Nolman only had me. In English, he said, you know, uh, do you want to come in and help me program things? So I think it was 88. I'm off to Boston, uh, you know, with this new gig to program the event. And I, you know, had no idea what I was doing. Absolutely zero. And again, back to, you know, Andy saw something in me. Boy, he took a way more of a leap on me than Robbie. I mean, Robbie had, had established himself a lot <laughs> more than a driver at Just for Laughs. Uh, but again, here it is, Andy, even though it's the beginning of the festival, only two or four years of it, but he still has a staff. He still has people that have been working for him for four years. A lot of people, even if it's a small festival, you're a driver. What is it you think that, again, going back to the Robbie example, that you feel that you showed him as a driver that the other people working in other positions way above a driver couldn't show him that they could do it. Well, listen, in this case, because I had uh, met Andy uh, through when, when he was teaching, he got to see me in a class, and I did other things than driving. And let's be clear, I was there was not a large staff. So there was, he did not pick me um, amongst a huge field of great potential uh, Just for Last programmers. I think I was the only guy that spoke English. I uh, left at the time. So, you know, I got a little lucky there. But but no, all that to say is that, um, look, I think what Andy saw in me is what he saw to some degree in himself and the same sort of thing that's happened with Robbie. We see someone that we believe will, um, that's got something, that's got drive, that's, you know, that's got everything, that's got chutzpah, that's got, and I think this is key, a nose for what's right for your business and what's right for our stage, what's funny can find that point of view um, and that is a unique skill and you can't really learn it anywhere either I think have it or you don't you know Barry we both sat in how many thousands of con we've had thousands of conversations and meetings with people where you realize when they're talking about comedy they don't got it <laughs> you know or uh, or maybe they're you know in some cases they're way way richer you know you know they've, they've made a, a fortune that's but, the most amazing thing. Yeah. When you meet with somebody, they have an act, and they're a multi-millionaire, and you talk with them, and it's like you have no idea how this person ever assembled any wealth at all or anything. No, it, 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 it happens more often than you, you'd expect, doesn't it? 
but you know, uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, having that, you know, that ability to assess talent, especially for us, which needs to be quite there's a range of things. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone wants to find a Chappelle or a Hicks, you know, um, a Louis C.K. Of course. I mean, that's, you know, something that you, uh, but you also have to assess, is that young kid able to walk out and do seven minutes of television when the lights are on, on her? That's also important. Because, because what happens here, for those of you who don't know, I'd say that the foundation of the festival which has remained true for over two decades, three decades, is the galas. And the galas are televised events with a big star hosting them and up-and-coming talent on the show is sprinkled with talent that is a little more well-known. And normally part of the whole deal is when you come up here and you have to do a gala, you have to agree to do the television set as well. It's very important. Right. Well, listen, now, I mean, that's very much the case, I think, you know, in, in my, in our era, you know, at, at Just Foss. But now there's, there's so many spots, you know, we, we luckily are not as, con, you know, constrained. We have, uh, I don't know, 50 new faces slots. We have 51 person shows. Last summer, I don't even know the numbers this year, but last summer, more stand-ups got television exposure at Just For Last than all the late night talk shows combined. Um, in America, um, we shot more stand-ups than every single talk show in late night combined, which says we shoot a lot of stand-up, which is great, which also says there are not a lot of opportunities for stand-ups, which is unfortunate. And a lot of shows have gone a different direction, and that's unfortunate. Now, obviously, there are fantastic platforms for stand-ups out there. I mean, Netflix has been great, Comedy Central, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know... Uh, the great thing for us is we've been able to cast a much wider net in terms of what we film. So, you know, every day our catalog of material um, is becoming more impressive because we've really been able to capture some of the greatest performances throughout people's careers, most importantly at the beginning of them, which is, you know, the key part. You know, when you go back and we produced a 30th anniversary special recently, it was overwhelming to uh, try to pick what the best performances were. You know, it's virtually impossible to do. We actually, for the 25th, had the Canadian public vote on them because, we, we, we for, aside from the political ramifications of us picking them, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, we just, we couldn't do it. It was, it was too difficult, you know? Let's talk about, I think it's kind of like an elephant in the room, which is this country's infrastructure with television and why Canadian artists as amazing, like if you've never been to the Montreal just for last festival, or you've never been up to Montreal during this time, it's the, I mean, it's intoxicating. It's like heroin and you can't imagine not being a part of it. And it's the highest level. It's like the four seasons of comedy yet the Canadian system in television and film is like the Motel 6. There's no money. There's nothing to do original television shows. What is there? Mr. D is the only show on television, maybe one other one. Their biggest thing is they do a match game remake. You're bringing in the greatest comedy in the country. And yes, your specials go. 
but they're in incremental things like uh, how they are. And why do you think it is that all the Canadian artists have to leave this country to go to the States to make money when they're here and that some of the greatest talent in the world, yet the networks will only spend like six bucks at a subway token on them to do a television show? Well, look, f first of all, yeah, you just got to remember Canada is a lot smaller than the United States of America and the, and the entertainment business is you know, minuscule in comparison. Look, here, I will say one thing. I, I will d disagree on one, one level, and I, I, overall sentiments, I totally understand where you're coming from. But the Canadian TV networks have uh, invested more in stand-up for us than anyone in, you know, you know, they have been crucial to us, because I will say this, without the Canadian TV networks, we wouldn't have the budget to book a lot of what we do with the US acts. So, and as I said to you before, the, you know, the amount of stand-up we shot last year, you know, I, I gave you the, the comparison, is because the Canadian TV networks. So, But the money, Bruce, is, you know how. Yeah, no, but, but listen, I will say this. That is unequivocal. Uh, without that, we would have a problem. And, um, and we're making the transition to shoot more specials for the US this year. We're shooting a, a Showtime special tonight. Great. But that's the basis. That's the foundation of our festival every summer is the money that we get to make those TV specials. Now, when it comes to the talent leaving the country, yeah, listen, it's been the case forever. The Canadian networks don't have the, the, the budgets to make the type of shows that we would all like them to make. And I, I would quite certain that most of the executives that Canadian television would like to have to work with. I mean, you know, they get to make a couple of shows a year. You know, it's just not... The U.S., it's, it's a much smaller business. But these days, you can make television shows for less. You mentioned Louis C.K., $325,000 an episode right. they gave him to make Louis. Emmy award-winning show. You're trying to tell me the Canadian networks don't have $325,000 an episode to do a series? Yes, they do. Yeah, well, listen, at the end of the day is... I think actually with what they have to work with, it's got better in some places because of the political ramifications of me saying anything more. Uh, I'm actually a little disappointed with a handful of networks right now that are pulling back um, and not making what even they were making two years ago. That is frustrating. But look, Barry, here's the thing. For us, we can't be worried about that. What we have to do is grow our brand outside of Canada. I will say again, the Canadian Networks give me a nice base to build from every summer. But it's on me and my team to make television shows. Number one, for stand-up fans around the world, I'm now shooting a series in Australia at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, I need to expand my stand-up business. Um, I need to expand it in the United States of America. But for Just for Last, we also have to get outside of stand-up. I can't be in the TV business for two weeks a year. We're now looking at projects that we can... We want to leverage our relationships and our platform here at the festival to make other types of television. You know, we need to be in the television business 12 months a year. And I love that you're doing an hour special for Showtime, and I never quite understood why, while you were up here, you have the camera crews, they're up here, you buy them for the whole festival. And this is something probably from a technical standpoint for the audience to know. You don't just buy a cameraman for one day when you're doing a festival. You buy the crews for a long period of time. You do the best you can, and you get as much out of them as you can. And you hope that there's as little downtime as possible. And if there is downtime, you try to program something in that space 
because you paid for it already. Well, explain to me why there's never been an initiative where when you're up here every year, you just shoot like four to ten hour specials every festival and you go to sell them at the networks. Why hasn't that been something that's been done? Well, listen, you know, we we have sold specials um, over the last 30 years to many U.S. networks. Uh, we haven't had the uh, hour specials. I'm talking. Yeah. About. Well, you know, and, and here's the thing. Our specialty is, you know, compilation specials. Our, our galas where there's a host and five, six, seven, eight, nine comedians on them. There isn't an enormous amount of appetite for that currently. You know, what people want is they want to buy hours of one artist. That's right. And more and more artists want to keep their rights they want to own. They don't want to share that with us. And I, and I respect that. I mean, I'm, you know, um, so it's hard for us to get into the specials business and own that, you know, and, and own that material. I, we would be very open to partnering on it. And I, I think we're going to try to figure that out at least on an, I'm say, up and coming intermediary level you know, artist. I think you will because, again, I alluded to it and I'm not trying to put you on the spot and I will just say it because, and I don't know, I'm not privy to any deal. But again, when you bring Dave Chappelle into Montreal, when you bring a guy who's literally like Prince is the music as he is the comedy, a guy who has no website, no Twitter feed, no Facebook, doesn't need anything. All he needs to do is somebody makes a call and says, Dave's here, and it's sold out. When you're a Bruce Hills and you're making that deal, you're beholden to whatever. It is. You don't even, I mean, you care. But if Dave Chappelle says, take the expenses off it and I want the whole door, what are you going to do? You're going to do the deal because you want a genius at your festival. And so with the hour specials, that's why sometimes it's hard for me to understand because it's like, well, we have a hard time figuring out the rights thing. Well, you know, if you can get great people and you get a shittier percentage of things, it builds the brand and then you can do, I think, whatever you want. And that's why it, it is a little bit hard to see. But I understand. I know that's an agenda for you and I know you're going to do it. So I'm not even going to... Mm go anymore with well, it. Well, listen, you know, Barry, first of all, uh, you know, I think uh, we um, are hopefully making that transition as we speak. You know, we did a, a presentation this 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 summer of a format that we're looking to develop called The Wake that we did. a With Gilbert Gottfried and yeah. brilliant everybody. So what we, we said to ourselves, look, we're very happy that people come here and um, launch their careers that business people like Mr. Barry Katz get to come up here and and sell ideas to networks on our home turf. This is what we're about, but we be, we should be better servicing ourselves as well. So, you know, what we're going to try to do in Montreal and Toronto and possibly even in Australia is use our festivals as platforms to sell um, sell shows, to sell ideas, and, you know, use the efficiencies that we have here at the festival, as you alluded to before. You know, we got the cameraman sitting here and and we've got the venue and the set built. Why not? Why don't we make more with that? And that's something we're very, very passionate about doing and driven to do. So hopefully, you know, we'll have this chat again someday. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about more about how how we've uh, had some success in that area. So I'd like to talk to you about a few things that I think our audience will love because you've seen so many comedians. So I'm just going to mention. 
first of all, you said you had a great Chappelle story. Yeah, yeah. So we got to do that. And so why don't you tell that? Okay. So I, you know, so it, it's funny. You know, I'm this week. I've been getting a lot of credit for Booking Day many, many years ago. And as I said earlier, anyone that saw that first tape would have booked the guy. So I mean, look, I'm not trying to be Mr. Humble here, but it, you just have to say it out loud. It is, it is easy to book brilliant. It's harder to find a jewel in the rough. So let's be clear here. So, okay, so I I looked at something great and said, I would like to book that. You know, what other decision did I have uh, to make there? But I will tell you how it went. So I lived right near here, uh, right in the middle of the action, half a block from my office, which was a great idea and a terrible idea all intertwined. And every night during the booking season, which is about a good four or five months a year, I would carry a box of VHS tapes home. <laughs> and, you know, after, you know, even early in my career, it was painful because most of them were terrible. And, uh, you know, you'd sit there and you'd fast forward to find the thing and then the tape would break and it was just, you know. But so I'd go home and, and I basically, my wife and I would watch, you know, my wife Liz and I would watch, most of the time she'd watch with me. Wonderful like, woman. Uh, yes, she is. Uh, is uh, we would watch these tapes and you know you know sometimes there were painful experiences so uh, you know we'd, I'd have this thing where if you didn't get me in that first minute I'd start fast forwarding or just eject it okay so I put on it this tape one night and um, I started watching a gentleman by the name of Dave Chappelle and he's doing a set in front of one of those brick walls probably evening at the improv or something and uh, I've never heard of him it's clean it's smart Good-looking kid, charismatic, and original. I mean, how's all this coming together? And I've never even heard of this guy. And he seems seasoned, you know. Um, so he does seven minutes, and there's not. And I'm always thinking, do I have seven for television? So sometimes I see something, I see two. And then I see another set, and I see one. And then I see nothing, and I go, eh, put him on them. Let's look at him later. There were seven perfect minutes, and I go, oh, my God. And there's another set. I think it was another A&E show, Comedy on the Road or something. The, the shittier version uh, of that uh, first show. Um, and I watched the second set. And it's, of course, you know where, where we're going here. It's another brand new set. Most acts, up-and-coming acts, would send you four of the same. They send you the same set four times on four shitty TV shows. And, you know, aside from the fact I never understood why they thought that would be of value to me. I've never done that in my life, yeah. and I never uh, understood it. I never, maybe they just want to show me their body of work of doing the same <laughs> thing. But um, so I watched the second set, and it's perfect. I go, this kid has two television sets? So I take the VHS tape out, and there's a phone number on it. <laughs> and, you know, usually I would put it someone on a list and, you know, procrastinate and drag it out to the finish line as you and I have had many conversations about me you know uh, you know pulling the trigger on something you wanted uh, or not late in the process and I just picked up my phone and you know not my cell phone my my dial phone because Barry and I are old I dialed you I probably dialed your number uh, and just said introduced myself and said I just watched this gentleman by the name of Dave Chappelle I gotta have this guy I gotta book him so uh He's in. And, uh, you know, and I didn't even book him for television. I mean, what was I thinking? But I booked him as sort of the first step was to come in and do Uptown Comics. And um, he came in and, as you, you know, uh, accurately described, killed, was fantastic and got all this heat from the industry. The other thing I, 
I remembered that I thought was fantastic was I'm pretty sure it was in between shows or at the end of the second show. I'm this is a great story. Uh, Dave had asked me, or maybe you had asked me, would you mind if Dave performed? Yes, it was in between shows. If Dave would perform for the audience on their way in, I, I don't remember. Anyway, would you mind if he performs outside the venue and, you know, puts his hat down and makes a bit of cash and performs for the audience because, <laughs> you know, this is what he does in New York. Because as a kid, when he couldn't get stage time in a, in a, in a nightclub because of his age, he had uh, worked around the city of New York. And Washington Square Park, and he was inspired by another client of mine, Charlie Barnett, who was the greatest street performer of all time. And Charlie taught him how to do live shows in the park. You know, that was a fantastic story. And then David told me who had influenced him, and it was Charlie. And... Um, Anyway, he went out there, and what does he do? He kills for 200 people waiting in line, and it makes probably more money than the shitty check that I gave him at the end of the night for doing two Uptown Comics. And, uh, you know, and again, it just was a great story. Um, everything he did that year, and pretty well every set he's ever done for us, spectacular. Um, and, uh, you know, there, uh, you know, I don't think I ever had that viewing experience of a stand-up before. You know, just... One example recently, I mean, it doesn't happen often. I'll, I'll, I'll just you know, tell you one other story very quickly. One year we were looking for the, someone on the Nasty Show, and you know, it's like you know, they were, there's not a lot of tapes of the dirty material. You, most of the time you have to go see them in a club, do the material. But we got a tape from someone, it was Jim Jeffries. And I watched this tape with a guy from Australia I'd never heard of. And he walks out and he does the 12 minutes I need for the Nasty Show. We book him, and that week... He not only killed, we moved him to close the show. <laughs> and that just came out of nowhere. So it happens from time to time. But Chappelle, to this day, and I wish I, I hope I have that tape somewhere in a box, was the best two sets of stand-up from an up-and-coming comic I've ever seen. Wow. Quick six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention the name of somebody, the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Tim Allen. One of the best stand-up television sets we ever booked. And uh, two years later, Home Improvement. That's right. Louis yeah. C.K. The comic that, when he was on the Nasty Shows early in his career, that I had to go and watch every night because he would do something different, and he made me laugh. It was just what my wife Liz and I wanted to watch. Same thing very much with Patrice. Patrice O'Neill, uh, we would go and just watch Patrice. Louis had that appeal to me, still does but especially when he was doing 10 nasty shows because I would see every one of them. Doing something different, everybody. Phil Hartman. Ugh. One of the best ever. Wish he came to the festival. Uh, he is missed. And by the way, I think would currently right now be one of the biggest comedy movie stars in the business. You know, Norm MacDonald. <laughs> uh, again, one of the best sets ever at the festival. 87 uh, funny Norm is, is one of the funniest dudes out there. Martin Short. Oh, the nicest man in show business and probably one of the most talented. We, are, um, we produce our festival in Sydney, Australia, at the Sydney Opera House. And um, we have a killer lineup that year. John Cleese, Louis C.K., uh, uh, Martin Short, of course, uh, Margaret, Margaret Cho. And uh, I have to. I want to go to Melbourne to see Martin's show and also Louis is flying in and doing a, a warm-up set. And I wanted to see that. Also, we had Dimitri Martin, who was also on our show, um, doing a, a concert prior to the festival in Sydney. So I went in for one night, hung out with Martin, had a blast, the nicest guy, the, just the nicest guy in show business. 
on the way home, uh, we're flying back to Sydney. And um, after he gets off the phone with Steve Martin, um, he says to me, hey, what's Louis C.K. like? And I go, oh, he's a good guy, you know? And he goes, like, a, like tell me. I mean, he's the hottest guy in comedy. I want to know. Tell me. And I said, listen, you know, he's not my closest friend, but a loyal dude, funny as hell, skyrocketing now. It's, you know, I, I think it's going to even go to another level from that. We have a nice conversation. Goes, yeah, because I, I just, everyone's fascinated by him and I've been watching him and I think he's great. Just want to know what he was like. You know, so anyway, we you know, go on to talk about something else. So I'm at rehearsal, and everyone's a little worried about, you know, Louis, all the, everyone, because he's just exploding. And it's his first trip to Australia. And everyone wants it to be perfect for him. And my partner, Adrian Bohm, and the Bohms want the experience to be perfect for Louis. So he wants to come back and do concerts with us. And uh, so, uh, you know, when he comes to the theater, uh, you know, they're all wanting to make sure he's happy and that everything's gone well for him. And, and I see him looking out towards the stage from backstage because uh, he hadn't come for the rehearsal. He didn't need to. And he sees me and he goes, hey, man, can I talk to you? And I go, oh, no, what's, what's going on? What do we do? Um, and I go, what's up? He goes, you good? And I go, yeah. He goes, um, do you know Martin Short? <laughs> I go, yeah. He goes, I go, and he goes, he's like my hero. It's like the reason I'm in comedy. <laughs> and I go, wow, that's, that's fantastic. And he goes, can I meet him? I said, sure. He goes, when do you want to meet him? You know, classic Louis. Um, now? I said, okay. So um, so I walk, take Louie, we start walking, and the Sydney Opera House backstage is like the scenes of Spinal Tap. You get lost everywhere. So thank God this day to get lost, because no, most of the time I can't find anyone's dressing room. thought, okay, all great. I'm going to walk Louie around in circles and never find Martin. He's going to be really happy. But anyway, thankfully, I find uh, Martin's dressing room. In the, and uh, as I walk up to the dressing room, I hear Marty uh, singing I think he's practicing <laughs> and uh, so I knock on the door and he and uh, and I said just give me a second he goes yeah yeah no no problem he's kind of nervous and I was like this is weird uh, Louis nervous and uh, so anyway I walk in I go um you're not gonna believe it but Louis's outside he asked me to introduce you and he wants to meet you and he goes really wow he's all <laughs> you know he's, he's impressed and you know and I bring Louis in and Louis's all nervous in front of Martin he goes you know he you're the reason I watch. I came into comedy. Uh, uh, SCTV was the greatest thing ever, and you on SNL, and pop, 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 pop. And then I just saw it going so well. I just said, you know, gentlemen, I'll leave you. And as as I'm leaving, someone knocks on the door, and it's Margaret Cho. She wants to come in and say <laughs> hi to Marty too. And 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 of course, knew knows Louis, Louis, and wanted to say hi. But but I just found it was great. And then when Marty came up to me right after, he goes. That was surreal, you know, or whatever he said. You know, can you believe that just happened? And I said, yeah. And I said, you know, you know how incredibly charming. And he says, how incredibly charming it was. I, I had no idea that he thought, you know, that I was one of his influences. Um, so anyway, I thought it was, uh, it was, it was a great little, uh, a great little story. Your proudest moment in show business? Boy, tough. I don't know. I don't know. I will say this. I. I always walk out of things like this and then remember nine things I didn't say. So I never really like to say the best. But I will say this festival, um, I uh, I had two fantastic experiences that um, I, you know, I was uh, leaving Dave Chappelle's late night party and his uh, team said, hey, you know, Dave would be really disappointed if you left. And it was like really late and I had to get up early. I said, I can't believe he's going to be disappointed if I left. I mean, he's on the time of his life. Um, 
but okay, well, maybe I'll go back, and but I'm, I'll just go up to it and tell myself I'm leaving. So, and uh, I wasn't sh- fully grasping why Dave would be upset I was leaving. I mean, you know, we're, you know, uh, he's got a lot of friends. He doesn't need me hanging out with him at three uh, thirty in the morning. Um, so I went up to Dave and I said, "Hey, man, I'm gonna go." And he goes, hey, "Just give me five minutes." So I'm going, "Why did he need to talk to me? Is there something wrong at the venue?" I go, oh, "That's weird." So okay, well, obviously I'm gonna wait five minutes. So all of a sudden, I see him grab a microphone. And now I'm clicking. I go, oh, he's not upset over the settlement or something. Not that Dave ever is. He's a gentleman. But, uh, and he stops and he says, um, hey, I just want to take a minute here. And no one in this room wants to hear this. They're all partying to this unbelievable band that Dave's brought in with Stevie Wonder and Stevie Wonder's backup band and Prince's backup band. Uh, but he says, I'm stopping everyone. I need you to pay attention. And he says that at... Uh, when I was 19 years old, I came here, and there's a guy in this room that booked me. I was broke. I've made millions since. He doesn't get credit. He's getting credit tonight. This is a man that I love, and uh, I want to say thank you. Wow. Biggest disappointment in show business and how <laughs> you turned it into something successful. Oh, my God. There's a lot of them. Um, I, I get very disappointed when artists come here and don't have the the great experience you know i always take it personally it does happen you know we it happens uh less and less every year but it does happen you know i want artists to come here i want comics to come here and have the best experience humanly possible and when that happens don't really want to name anyone but uh i always take it personally and as does robbie and last question you've seen many many artists in your life including you've seen yourself and people like robbie what advice would you have for the young executive who's working his way through the ranks as a driver or whatever they are somewhere to get to the level that you're at today? And especially, what advice do you have for the young artist to break through to you and to prove to you that they're the kind of artist that can get to the next level and be in this festival and be a huge part of it from years and years to come? Well, listen, let's start with the comics. I mean, look, it's about originality. It's about point of view. Be different. Be great. I mean, it, to me, it's really that simple. What I gravitate to the most is hearing an original voice. I mean, obviously, hysterical voice, but sometimes someone's not someone that we've booked and has transitioned into a fantastic artist. I mean, look, if you look at Louis C.K., wasn't the best stage performer in the early years. What it was was the incredible material. No one was doing what Louis was doing. He's turned into a fantastic performer. But that's not why I booked him. I booked him because of that incredibly fantastic material. In terms of executives, look, I think it's quite simple. One of the things we look for every time we add a key member to our staff, we're looking for honesty. We're looking for someone that's going to go the distance. We want to know that that executive, they're passionate about what they're doing. I want to know that my team is committed. I want to know that they're not only committed to putting the hours in, they're committed to the caliber of work and also initiative. Initiative is so crucial. There are numerous times I sit in a meeting, I ask a question and people look at me like it's a question that they've never heard before. But to you and I, Barry, I would expect it to be second nature. Robbie Praw, some of the best staff I've had here, before I'm even thinking what the question is, they figured it out. It's because they're on it. They're passionate. They want to come into 
a job and not just maintain it. They want to elevate it. To not be thinking about the next job, be worrying about the job you have. I mean, a lot of people have come to Dress for Last and done much bigger things afterwards. That's great, but finish the job you have. Don't walk out halfway through. Don't come to the festival, do a half-assed job and schmooze. Come in, kill it. I want people to come in and make us better. I want people to come in and tell me what I don't want to hear if I have to hear it. I want them to do it, hopefully, in a clear and concise manner, but I want to be challenged. I think that if you can figure out how to walk into a job and make your superiors better, if they're secure enough to handle that, that's so important. Thank you so much, Bruce. Barry, thank you very much, man. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Okay, landing on Stephen K. O'Neill from Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Stephen bought the documentary I Killed JFK, and because of that, and because I randomly got you here, Stephen, you are a lucky winner, and you will be able to come to a podcast live when we're taping it, or if you don't come to L.A., we will hook you up via Skype or FaceTime or anything else so you can be a part of it, ask my guest questions in the future, and I'm sure you'll have a great time. So congratulations. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Will Way J, December 15th, 2015. Heading reads, have a need to succeed, question mark, five stars. And it reads, hear how real people have done the right things to get them to the next level and be super successful, mostly in the field of entertainment, but it's all the same in business. Truly inspirational stories, man. You're going to be amazed, I promise you. I have heard them all, and they are all great. Thank you so much, Will Way J. You have won the opportunity to be a part of one of my live podcasts. If you're here in Los Angeles or on the road, we'll hook you in some way, shape, or form, and you'll get to be a part of it. Congratulations. And as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.